Do you want to say something to the group, Mr. McMurphy? Well, <clears throat> yeah. I'd like to know why none of the guys never told me that you, Miss Ratchet, and the doctors could keep me here till you're good and ready to turn me loose. That's what I'd like to know. Well, fine, Randall. That's a good start. Would anyone care to answer, Mr. McMurphy? Answer what? You heard me, Harding. You let me go on hassling Nurse Ratchet here, knowing how much I had to lose, and you never told me nothing. Now, Mac, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't know anything about uh, how much. Wait a minute. Shit. Now listen. I, I... Now look. I'm I'm voluntary here. See, I'm not committed. I don't have to stay here. I mean, I can go home anytime I want. You can go home anytime you want. That's it. You're bullshitting me. Oh. No. He's bullshitting me, right? No, Randall. He's telling you the truth. As a matter of fact, there are very few men here who are committed. There's Mr. Bromden, Mr. Tabor, some of the chronics, and you. Cheswick, hmm? you're voluntary? Mm-hmm. Scanlon? Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? No, 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 no. Mom, Mom. Okay. I mean, you're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You ought to be out in a convertible while bird-dogging chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? It's funny about that. Well, Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. You're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Jesus Christ, I can't even believe it. Those are very challenging observations you made, Randall. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 266. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Just a, a peek, a little bit of a glimpse into our futures. <laughs> well, if you recall, we were planning on doing this on Christmas Day. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. got shuffled, and I promised we would do it this year, and here it is, finally. <laughs> Yeah, I finally revisited it because I think I had only made it like, I don't know, 75% of the way through when you <laughs> pulled it. And I was like, 
All right, well, I guess I'll just go on the back burner. Yeah, well, you never know when I'm going to dramatically change the schedule at the last possible minute <laughs> because I don't want to do something or whatever. There's certain ones that have really moved around the schedule a few times. Remember, was Blade Runner one that we were going to do and then just it completely got pushed back at some point? I don't remember that. Okay. There's plenty of them. Sure. 1975, one of the great American films of all time. An era-defining film, much like some of the others that we've covered. This one comes on the heels of the counterculture movement, but it's from a novel that really precipitated the counterculture movement and was sort of the beginning of it in 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 a way. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I know there's a whole history to it, but you see Michael Douglas's name pop up as a producer right in the opening credits it it jumps out at you so before we talk about one flew over the cuckoo's nest let's remind our listeners to follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts. please take the time to give us a rating and review on apple Podcasts. we would really appreciate it yeah we're trying to get some positive ones again try to bury some of the negative ones <laughs> 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 there really isn't that many. <laughs> Matt, you always make it seem like things are much more grim than they are, which is par for the course for your life. Yeah, well, you're the one that's connecting with the listeners on Twitter all the time. That's I don't, true. I don't, it used to be the only people that listened to the show had my phone number and would text me. <laughs> <laughs> but now that we have all these random listeners, they're sliding into the DMs on social media. Yeah, it's only taken us like six and a half years, but we've been building up an yeah. audience over time. <laughs> We haven't had the chance to get out there, you know, at the cons and start shaking hands. Yeah. Taking pictures. We'll have to do a live show at some point. It's always been in, in the long-term plans. A listener meetup. I'd, yeah, I think so. <laughs> if you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter, at GreatestPod, and we'll send that to you for free. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Z-A-C-H-1983. And Matt Crosby. Mm-hmm. I've really slowed down on there. Don't really even review that many movies. Yeah, same. I go in, in waves. Like, I feel like several days go past with nothing, and then I'll watch, like, three or four movies on, like, a weekend, load up, and then be like, all right, I need a break again. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a film that I first saw, who knows how long ago, 20 years ago, something like that. And I did read the book believe it or not, before I ever saw the movie, because I used to be really obsessed with the 60s. Okay. And the name Ken Kesey came up. I checked this book out of the library when I was probably in middle school, so I don't really have much of a recollection of reading it. I know that I did read it. Sure, okay. Don't really remember it. I did see this movie back in the day, but I don't really have a very clear memory of when that was. Although this is one of those movies that I just feel like at a young age, you just know it exists. Yeah, that was the big difference probably 45 years ago, close to 50 years ago, and now in terms of the Oscar films. This was a huge movie at the time, financially, and it also won a ton of Oscars. And when you look at what it was nominated against... And also the movies that won the previous couple years and the years after. It's really not a competition. Sure. When you're comparing <laughs> yeah. the profile of those films versus the films now. Right. 
I'm not even saying quality because quality is more subjective. I'm just talking about the profile. The public consciousness of these films is so different. Yeah, the longevity of it, whether or not it lives on at all. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was directed by Milos Forman. Screenplay by Lawrence Hauber and Bo Goldman. And it's based on the novel by Ken Kesey. It had a budget of somewhere between three and four point four million. Originally, it was supposed wow. to be much less, but I think they overspent on some things. It's fairly contained, although in a pretty big boat set piece. I think Nicholson ended up costing some money. He was pretty high profile by this point. I guess most of these dudes that are in it were either unknowns or at least they hadn't really been in right. feature films at that point. It does jump out to you because it's certainly the side characters are. A bunch of people who basically made their careers as character actors. At the box office, it brought in an astounding $163.3 million, which by today's inflated numbers would be $870 million. Oh, it's like Fast and the Furious. Yes, and that's what I was <laughs> alluding to. These types of movies were the huge movies. Right, right. You didn't have to have Spider-Man or special effects. The or Rock like wasn't that. in it. <laughs> the, Rock. the Rock is his own walking special effect. Sure. At the Oscars, it swept the major categories, much like The Silence of the Lambs, which we did a revisited of last year, and it happened one night in 1934, which I think it would be interesting to do that on the podcast someday. (laughs) It won Best Picture, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Actress for Louise Fletcher, Best Director for Foreman, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Halber and Goldman. In the category of Best Picture, it was up against Jaws, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, and Nashville. What a year. Yes. Oof. Unlike the garbage we have now. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards in all, with a nomination for Brad Dourif for Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. I would have thrown cinematography out there, something that was catching my eye, too, that Haskell Wexler. Yeah, he got fired, too. <laughs> and Dude. they replaced him. I don't know if you noticed the additional photography yeah, yeah. by... I did. But he claims that all but three or four minutes is his. I okay. think him and Foreman just had a difference of opinion. Gotcha. But it seemed like late in the game that they made the switch. Oof. Always good. So by the time this reached the silver screen, it... As a story, it already had a pretty big reputation. It was a novel that captured the zeitgeist of of the time. It came out in the early 60s and really was a metaphor for what the 60s was all about, individualism versus the man. Right. The man in this story being personified by Nurse Ratchet. That's right. Well, and sort of a general institutionalized situation that they're in. Yes, And it was adapted into a Broadway stage version in 1963. It ran for only a short time, into 64, but the star was Kirk Douglas. He purchased the film rights as well and tried for at least a decade to get it made, but was never able to get it off the ground and eventually sold the rights to his son, Michael, who by this point was starring in Streets of San Francisco, which was a television show. Hmm. I think he had been in... The China Syndrome, although maybe that was the next year. He wasn't really known much of an actor yet. I was wondering, like when his name popped up in the credits, and I knew I had heard some of the backstory before, but I was like, how old was he at this point? He was just starting down the path. Yeah. He was probably in his 30s. I think he's a little younger than Nicholson, who was 38 at the time. It would be a ways before Basic Instinct. 
it's shocking how old Douglas is in Basic Instinct. He's like in his late forties, <laughs> trying to be cool <laughs> with that sweater. Yeah. <laughs> to save everyone the hassle, we're not going to go through every element of trying to get this thing made. But suffice to say, Michael eventually succeeded. But by the time that the funding was there and things were ready to go, Kirk was nearing 60, which was far too old for the part. So they offered it around. They they tried to get interest from Gene Hackman, who I think was Ken Kesey's choice. But Hackman turned it down. I think there was discussions with James Caan, even Marlon Brando. I know oh, wow. that Milos Foreman was interested in Burt Reynolds if that didn't work out with Nicholson. This is one of the ones where, it, for me, it has to be Nicholson. This is like yeah, one once of his you defining see it, you roles, you know? Yeah, okay. Because, yes, I think that even though physically Hackman might come closer to what Kesey describes in the novel. Like a, a night moves Gene Hackman. You have to have that personality. The charisma. The charisma of a Jack Nicholson. Because you buy the fact that these other men are drawn to him. Absolutely. And that there's just this magnetism... And that they want to follow him and his lead. And I think Burt Reynolds could have done it, but it wouldn't have been quite the same. There would have been sort of that, a little more sleaziness to it. Yeah, almost. yeah. right. <laughs> you can believe that Nicholson could get a ton of ladies, but that he wouldn't be interested in fucking Nurse Ratchet. I think with Burt Reynolds, you almost have to write a scene where he does fuck Nurse <laughs> Ratchet. Because that's just Burt Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to see that version. He's chewing gum while he's doing it. Yeah, we're going to do it, babe. That was my terrible Burt Reynolds. My Burt Reynolds impression is basically Norm MacDonald's Burt Reynolds. Okay. Me doing an impression of Norm MacDonald doing it. Like I said, Nicholson was 38 by the time this film came out, and that is shocking to me because... I can never tell how old he is at any given time. I'm not saying he doesn't look 38. It just it seems like he's still at the start of his career. Okay, yeah. But he was already nearing 40. It took him a little while to really gain any traction, though. I know. It does seem wild that a guy with the leading man career that he's had would really take a step forward that late. Well, it speaks to his talent and it speaks to the charisma that we've already discussed because you start getting into those late 80s, early 90s, through most of the 90s, if he wasn't already Jack, uh-huh. you'd be like, who is this fucking chud? Like this <laughs> repulsive <laughs> yeah, monster. Really. But Har- it's Jack. You're just like, he's the coolest dude ever. Yeah, I know. Even though it is like hard guy to look at. <laughs> yeah, but like he wasn't. Though, I know. Because he did the thing with the eyebrows and he's just, yeah. it's just it's him. insane hair. Yeah. You get into The Shining and you're thinking now, there's oh no gosh. way in 2022 if they remade The Shining and they released it into theaters, they would have a guy with a hairline that looked like Jack Nicholson. No way. There just is no guy. It would be Chris Hemsworth. Right. No, I know. I was thinking of that. Like, even if they just made One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest right now, like, all the side people would be like Tom Holland, Chris Hemsworth. Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. I know. It stinks. This is what I was talking about with the Batman and how we've replaced character actors and even though Nicholson was a leading man, he definitely had the appearance, at least the hairline of a character actor. But even leading men, like Gene Hackman. Yeah, yeah. These type of people have been buffed out. They've been smoothed uh, away. I mean, just, like Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd are in like a ton of movies. Brad Dorff even. Yeah. Those guys wouldn't even be allowed to be in movies. They wouldn't even <laughs> let them on set. <laughs> 
unless it was about a horrible mutant. (laughs) But even then, it goes to Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper is the geek at the end. It's like, okay, we believe this. Yeah. It sucks. And not to spoil everything now, but in lieu of recommendations, we're going to be talking about something else instead at the end of this episode. And that's going to lead me on another tangent about why everything sucks, which is... The streamers have ruined everything, too. Oh, everything yeah. sucks now. <laughs> Was <laughs> that not to, clear? <laughs> you need to have people who look like Jack Nicholson, who look like Gene Hackman, who have these distinct looks, right. but also a ton of charisma and talent. Now everybody is this bland, photoshopped, smoothed-out, airbrushed version. Yeah, I know. Well, it's like when Oof. you go to some of these newer cities in America where everything's just completely redone it all looks the same like luxury apartment with a new brewery on the first floor (laughs) block after block looks the same it needs some blight you need some character with some history and old architecture and shit it's the same thing with what the movie industry has become the film's first screenwriter lawrence hoban introduced douglas to the work of milos foreman whose 1967 czechoslovak film the Fireman's Ball had certain qualities that mirrored the goals of the present script. Foreman flew to California and discussed the script page by page, outlining what he would do, in contrast with other directors who had been approached who were less than forthcoming. Foreman wrote in 2012, To me, the story was not just literature, but real life. The life I lived in Czechoslovakia from my birth in 1932 until 1968. The Communist Party was my nurse ratchet telling me what I could and could not do, what I was or was not allowed to say, where I was and was not allowed to go, even who I was and was not. So he brought that approach to it. But the unique thing was that when Michael's father, Kirk, was trying to get this off the ground, he met Foreman in Europe, told him about the book and how he wanted to make it into a movie, and promised to send him one. And Foreman was interested This was all unknown to Michael Douglas that this had happened. And he did send him a copy of the book. However, it was seized. Oh, wow. And Foreman never knew. And so he was pissed. He's like, you never sent it to me. (laughs) Kirk Douglas was pissed because, like, you never responded. You never, you know. So he had tried to reach out to Milos Foreman randomly because obviously Foreman wasn't really a huge presence in American film yet. Right. And then he ends up on the picture later. The filming... And the production all took place on location at a real mental hospital in Salem, Oregon. My favorite part of the country. And they got a lot of actual patients involved, both in front of and behind the camera. Boy, not exactly an advertisement for the treatment of mental health, this movie. Well, it took a special guy. It was the doctor who plays Dr. Spivey in the film, who was the real head of this place. And he saw the benefits of telling this story and I think agreed with the overall message and had a different approach to mental health than was popular in the time. Yeah. Which doesn't really seem like there was a lot of evidence that the old approach was effective. I'm talking about Dean R. Brooks, who was a medical doctor and he plays Dr. Spivey in the, in the story. And I think he did things like take, the patients out to whitewater raft and different things that people weren't really doing. And and he had like this high success rate of people re-entering society. Wow. 
and things of that nature. So he saw the benefit. His boss didn't want it, want it to happen. He actually appealed all the way to the governor of Oregon at the time to allow this to happen. Oh, boy. So they ended up filming in January in Oregon where it would get dark at like 4.30 in the afternoon. And it, it definitely lends itself to that glum atmosphere that you see and it comes across, even though not a ton of it is outside or anything. Yeah. It's overcast, though. Yeah, for sure. The cast and crew would more or less reside in the hospital for the entire production and a few weeks of pre-production. Foreman was determined to have his actors, quote, become patients. They would immerse themselves in the hospital culture. They arrived several weeks before shooting. Each actor was given a patient to observe closely. They followed them for days, learning physical traits, medical routines, and therapeutic regimens. While they did not use drugs to achieve Kesey's absence of preconceptions, they simulated their characters with surprising ease, which probably speaks to the talent of the actors. Sure. Ken Kesey was hired originally to do the script, and it just didn't work out. And I think that it comes across in some of the documentaries and some of the interview materials with Michael Douglas now that there is some regret at how things went down, especially at the Academy Awards. He felt like they probably didn't really give Kesey his due that night Mm, for the story. But ultimately, he was approaching it from a completely different perspective with chief as the narrator and so you're in his head which is sort of how the book works but it's a lot more of like his vision yeah i think it's one of the great reveals when you know that chief is actually like aware of what's going on right talk and everything but in addition to full-scale immersion foreman also encouraged plenty of improv i think a lot of the more famous scenes are improved or at least elements of them and there was a certain almost documentary style shooting to some of it. It especially feels the that party way. and stuff. Yeah. It was basically like just we're gonna have a party. Have fun guys. Turn on the camera yeah, and yeah. see what you get, kind of a thing. Even a lot of the hangout scenes feel that way. <laughs> yeah. The hangout scenes. Yeah. <laughs> just hanging out. <laughs> well I, I I guess they would say that like therapy is going on, although I'm not seeing really any evidence of that. Yeah, well... I would say Nurse Ratchet's methods are questionable at best. I don't really know what she's getting at here. (laughs) Oh, you think? That's your big takeaway? Right. (laughs) What are we trying to accomplish? Yeah, well, I mean, that is sort of the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) One of the great villains of all time, I'd say, Nurse Ratchet. There have been plenty of times in my own life where I've thought, Man, I would just like to check into a place like this and just not yeah. have to deal with anything. I want to go to like the Ben Affleck places, though. You know, rehab, but it's also, <laughs> but under the guise of it's for mental health. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. It is voluntary in a lot of these instances, but because of dramatic changes in America over the last few decades, which is something maybe we'll talk about at some point, a lot of these places are closed, they don't exist. These people are homeless. That's how things are now. Yeah. We gave up on mental illness in the 80s. I don't want to turn this into a whole politics thing, but a lot of these places don't exist anymore. And well, if yeah. you go to a place like this, you got to be rich and you got to be able to pay for it yourself. That's right. Because we're not providing it anymore. And so that's why there are homeless problems in a lot of places now. It's gotten worse and worse and worse because I think a lot of these people would be in places hospitals like this i think so yeah although at least homeless they're not being just randomly lobotomized that we know of yeah true 
Jack Nicholson for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It was his fifth Oscar nomination. He didn't even want to attend that night. Michael Douglas talked him into it. Huh. He was pissed and annoyed with them because he had been nominated four times. The first time for Easy Rider for supporting actor, but then also for five easy pieces. Yeah. The last detail in Chinatown. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that is a rough run to get passed over for. He finally wins. He actually won two other Oscars, I one t- for supporting actor for Terms of Endearment and Best Actor for As Good As It Gets. I do love these actors, though. They should take their profession seriously, but that when they actually get like pissed that they don't win, it seems I think the nuts. Oscars were just... They've gone through weird phases sure. of how people perceive them. I remember hearing a story about the first time Al Pacino went because he had never gone before and they took him to it and I think he was fucked up or something. I don't know if it was drugs or drink or what, but <laughs> he was all out of it and he started panicking as it got close to like an hour into it and because he, he thought it was only an hour. And he's like, they're not doing the awards. Like He was like, why aren't they doing the awards? I had no concept of it. Oh, even. wow. And then obviously... Marlon Brando doesn't go that one year, and it turns into a whole thing with the Native American woman. and It just was like a weird, different time. They really struggle with this award show. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that, I don't know that Nicholson was like pissed or what, if it was more just he didn't really think of it as anything at the time, or it was like a joke to him or what, but... He ended up going and winning, and he became sort of the mascot of the Academy Awards after that. That's true. As I was saying to you before we started recording, I do think As Good As It Gets is a pretty good movie, and it is one of those definitive 90s movies. For it feels sure. very 90s. Yeah. But for that to be one of the Academy Awards he's actually won is sort of hilarious. It's weird, and maybe it's just because of how old I was and the difference in the generation at the time. But like you remember those like every year in the 90s. As Good As It Gets seems weird that it even was one of these movies, but it's you know, Jerry Maguire. Like, these movies just had, like, such a collective buzz. Yeah, because older people used to go to the movies and care about them right. and talk about them. And now everyone sits at home and watches whatever garbage they put in front of you on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to see Sideways. No, no. No one's going to see As Good As It Gets. No one's going to see Jerry Maguire. Maybe the cult of Tom Cruise would be able to get Jerry Maguire to be kind of a hit now, but I just feel like those movies in general adult-oriented films like that, no. There's no audience for it anymore. I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before, but I used to gauge how popular movies were by just like going to Blockbuster and seeing how many copies they had out for rent. So when one of those movies would come out, it would literally be like 30 Oh, yeah, because those are movies that people would definitely go and rent. Right. They would take their Blockbuster card and rent Jerry Maguire and As Good As It Gets, and they would have a great time. That's right, yeah. Also, one of the problems is, in addition to the streamers, I think that people who are our age, older 30s, into the 40s, even into the 50s, they're more interested in fucking Spider-Man and Iron Man now. Oh, that's true. They don't want to see movies like that. So, you know, <laughs> everything turns into me whining right. about something. Well, and we'll talk about it as this movie goes along. And one of the differences, I think, between a movie like this and one of the things that makes it great and something that filmmakers aren't really doing today probably for various reasons but this is where really challenging the viewer a little bit because you know our hero in this movie is not exactly a great guy like is it a great thing if he actually gets out of here when you know some of the reasons that he's in here well 
Yeah. I, I think I, that you can ignore that, though, because if they made this now, they would just make his crime be something else. The for crime sure. itself is it's not important to the story. Yeah, I know, but... I think people today would fixate on that and define the whole character by that, but I think at the time that was more of an afterthought. Yeah, yeah. You are totally 100% sucked into rooting for this dude. Yeah, and now they would be afraid that you wouldn't root for him, so they would try to frame it differently. Or maybe he was innocent the whole time or something like that. Whereas I think back then they were more comfortable with an anti-hero. And not that this was right or yeah, okay, yeah. but they would certainly not feel the same way about statutory rape oh, in for 1975. Sure. Yeah. Especially when he gives his whole excuse. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually reading something on, I think, Reddit where a non-English speaker was questioning this movie and the way that it was translated into their language was basically making it sound like he had raped multiple women mm. because of the way they were translating assaults, gotcha. which he is really talking about fights. Right, yes. But it made it seem like this was like a serial rapist and okay. they're just like having a hard time then getting it, over that part of the story. That would be a very questionable background. Yeah. It's still pretty questionable, but that sure. made it even worse. Yes. You're just like, this guy is a monster. Right. <laughs> Everyone applauded at the end. Nicholson's run starting in 1970, and yes, this is selected because I am skipping over some stuff, but from 70 to 75, five easy pieces, carnal knowledge, the king of Marvin Gardens, the last detail, Chinatown, the passenger, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Just an incredible run. He's a pretty similar character in several of those movies. Yeah, I don't think that you would ever compare Nicholson to, say, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Not that he plays himself all the time. There's definitely a difference between how he acts in As Good As It Gets versus The Departed right? or something like that. It's not that he just is himself necessarily all the time, but he doesn't really disappear into roles either. There's a shtick, but it's so uniquely him that it works, yeah. He's a true movie star, but he's a movie star who's also a talented actor. Right. He's probably my favorite actor, in a way. Definitely one of the all-time greats. And there's a lot of his stuff that I haven't seen, and I'm planning on watching this year. I was telling you that earlier. Well, he's always going back and forth as who my most viewed actor is on Letterboxd, but the other one is William Dafoe. (laughs) Or Willem Dafoe. Yeah, Willem Dafoe, yeah. (laughs) So let's get into it. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. First thing that jumps out to me in the opening is no privacy in this place. They're all sleeping in the same room, essentially. Yeah, it's a rough scene. I don't know if I would be able to handle that. I would almost prefer to get put into one of those jail cells in there. It's like Suspiria when they all go into the main room to sleep, but (laughs) all the time. Yeah, it is like that. (laughs) Then they're going to put on a ballet production later. Well, I mean, come on. There's some similarities in the villainesses. Louise Fletcher plays Nurse Ratchet. A good-looking woman, sexless, which is part of the character. Domineering. But even beyond sexless, she's not a woman, but she's also not a human, almost. Yeah. And it's sort of becomes McMurphy's goal is, in a weird way, to prove that she is human. I know that's sort of digging in the weeds a little bit, and it's oversimplifying a lot of what's going on, but... He's trying to pull out her humanity. In a way. That's not his goal, really. That's more of like a byproduct of what he's doing. Right. But that would help his cause, because she's this symbol. 
in a way. She's definitely more than a symbol. She chooses to be this person. She craves her authority, and that is one of the big for sure issues. But even still, beyond that, she is the face of authority. She's the face of the machine. And in order to be that, you have to almost lose the things that make you a human, that makes her a woman. We don't know about her personal life. We don't know if she has one. We don't know what she does outside of the hospital. There's never any indication at all. Doesn't feel like a lot of fun is being had. It almost feels like she's naked when she says that she's friends with fucking Billy's mother. You're like, what? (laughs) That's like almost as shocking as anything else she could have revealed. Also feels like a professional conflict. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You think? (laughs) She's also just a fucking nurse, and she runs this place, That's true. The doctor's... Go Do along whatever with she whatever wants. she says. Right. But you get it. You've worked with people like that. <laughs> <laughs> a big part of the film is almost a harbinger of things that I just discussed about what would happen in this country. The criminalization and stigmatizing of mental illness, which is a uniquely American thing. And this is a uniquely American story that has actually increased in relevancy in the decades after this film was released. Because of the things I mentioned, getting rid of a lot of these hospitals, forcing these people to fend for themselves. But at the same time, what we're going to discover over the course of the two hours of the film is that a lot of the people in the film aren't sick in the way that we think they're sick. True. And that's sort of the stigmatizing of mental illness that I was talking about, where, yes, they have these different issues going on with them crippling anxiety for example in the case of billy but that doesn't mean that they're not human beings that could still partake in society yeah yeah but you learn over time that what's going on at this hospital is almost counterproductive to that absolutely because it's not really about getting anybody better no no it's about maintaining authority and control that's right ratchet almost seems obsessed with keeping them there yeah, because she's the authority. Yeah, yeah. She has the control. She has the power. We get a look at Chief, played by Will Sampson, a seven-foot-tall Native American fellow. A, a big dude. Who's a big-ass bigger, dude. Bigger by the end of the movie. He was hard to find. He, it was a hard part to cast. They were fighting off Vince McMahon for his <laughs> talents. Look at the size of this guy, pal. <laughs> They were discussing this on some of the documentary footage that you can watch on the Blu-ray release and things of that nature that I guess as a people, Native Americans aren't particularly tall, so it was hard to find this guy. Hmm. They were scouting and looking for a guy that just fit this size. Didn't even have to be an actor because... Not a ton of lines. He doesn't have to talk a lot. They just needed to find the right guy. They finally tracked him down and actually set off a little bit of a career for... Samson. He does appear in other films, including The Outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, wow. Notably. I think he's in maybe Poltergeist 2? I wonder if he held out for more money. He probably didn't know how much of a commodity he was for this. (laughs) (laughs) He shows some reluctance to take the pill at the beginning of the film before McMurphy even shows up. And they give out this medication. They never really explain what it is, which I think has been emulated in a lot of television and movies since this is sort of that idea where they're just handing you medication i know and you're like what even is this to most likely just keep you calm at all times yeah oh okay i kind of need that then (laughs) (laughs) a lot of the book talks about the combine which is how Hmm. 
Chief describes it. The combine is a catch-all term for... What's his 40 time? <laughs> not that combine. Okay. The combine is the thing that took the Native Americans' land. It's the thing that is stripping McMurphy of his individualism. It's the man. It's the government. It's the force that's holding you down. It's society at large. That's right. It exists to oppress the people within it. It's a giant, unbeatable force. A lot more of that comes from Chief's perspective in the novel, but I think Foreman and the screenwriters do a good job of getting that across without yeah. somebody just saying it. That's right. Not everything has to be spelled out for you. It's more implied, but you get it. At this point in time, we understand that Chief is also deaf-mute, who's just this big guy, always around, not talking. Yep. In 1963, Randall P. McMurphy, played by Nicholson, is on an Oregon work farm for the statutory rape of a 15-year-old girl. I wasn't super familiar with work farms. I mean, I think I I could figure out what it was from the conversation, but... Yeah, I don't know how common they are now. Yeah. But it's basically just unpaid labor for prisoners. So, I definitely starred this little part here. Because yeah, I yeah. knew we were going to need to talk about it in today's uh-huh. context. As I said, I don't think the specifics of McMurphy's crimes are important to the story. I don't think that he's necessarily supposed to be a good guy. No, no. But I don't think that they would want you to fixate on it either. And so yeah. since perception about this has changed, I think they would just make this something else. Right, now. right. I do think that they want you to be somewhat conflicted about his character but not be like what he did was unforgivable. Yeah. That, right. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. good point. That would be beyond the pale now. There would right. be no coming back from this now. And that's not what they would want to do because the crime itself is not important. He's just a guy who doesn't want to do labor. And so I do like he's going to try to get out of it. When they're kind of talking about his criminal background, they mention lazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, well, man, if that's a crime, I'm in trouble. Yeah, the way he talks about it is that the girl told him she was 18, and he's like, she was 15 going on 35, Mm -hmm. wink, wink. Yeah. In those days, it's actually hard to believe he even got arrested for this. I will say the doctor's not going along with the wink, to be fair. No, no, no. No, but I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was just a different time, which doesn't excuse it, of course. It, of course, doesn't. But it's not worth fixating on because it's not crucial to the story. not the point of the movie. No. He's just in jail and doesn't want to do this labor. That's it. It yeah. doesn't matter why he's in jail. If you're losing it at that point, then I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You're missing the point of the movie. McMurphy gets himself transferred to a mental institution to avoid the hard labor. The ward is dominated by head nurse Mildred Ratchet. Is it sort of implied that he was kind of acting a little crazy to like force a move here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> What did you think happened? Do you think they would just let anyone decide they wanted to go there? I don't really know, because it's hard to tell how he acts normally. <laughs> it's always sort of crazy. That's true, but I do think this is all intentional. He wants to yes, do this. Yes. He thinks that this is the A easy way out. Way out. Right. Of course, he doesn't know what it really means. Yeah, yeah. Which Rat- is sort of nuts that he just thinks he's going to be able to go here and like waltz out at some point. Well, no or one just- accused him of being the brightest. Sure, sure. <laughs> Ratchet is a cold, passive-aggressive tyrant who intimidates her patients and rules with an iron fist. I don't know that there's much more to say about Nurse Ratchet that we haven't already said or that won't come up later. 
Now, I'm um, always taken aback by how young she looks. Yeah. Because in my head, I'm always thinking she's older. And then anytime I've watched the film, I'm like, oh, okay, she's not that old. Well, looking. it's almost like her character, like the way she, she like carries herself as like an older woman. True. Yes. It's the dress, it's the hair. Yeah. Louise Fletcher, of course, was in Cruel Intentions, which we did recently, although her part in that is, you know, superfluous at best. It doesn't really serve much of a purpose, <laughs> yeah, but sure. she is in it. She's a little bit older than Nicholson. I think she was already in her 40s, but she looks young. You could have told me she was in her late 20s, and I would have believed it for 1975. She just looks good. I'm a horrible gauge of people's age. I can never tell, especially in these older movies. I think that depending on your worldview and your perspectives, you may watch the film and not really understand why she's the villain and McMurphy is not. Especially if you fixate on why he's in jail in the first place. But I think that if you pick up on normal social cues and you can sort of see behind the words she uses, because she never really raises her voice. She doesn't say anything overtly evil or sinister there's never a moment where she sneaks around to the corner with the other nurses and is like i'm gonna fuck with them or i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that (laughs) yeah it's always done under the guise of this is my job i'm a medical professional this is what's best but there is that thick layer of passive aggressiveness in almost everything she does and says especially when she's trying to exert her authority or she feels her authority is being questioned she has the ability to make up the rules, which is helpful for her cause. <laughs> yeah, the vote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Besides Chief and McMurphy, we have young, anxious, stuttering Billy Bibbit. Billy. Played by Brad Dorif in a debut role. He's nominated for an Oscar. He's gone on to a pretty good career as a character actor. He's in a lot of cool horror shit uh-huh. associated with the Chucky franchise. That's right. But... I always remember him from a really good episode of The X-Files. Oh, really? Yeah. What is it? I don't remember the name. Okay. I'm not good with TV episode names. I can't just pull them out of my... But he plays a guy in jail or death row. Okay. I I think I remember this episode. Charlie Cheswick, played by Sidney Lessig, another character actor. I know that he is in Deep Cover, which just recently came to Blu-ray on the... Criterion Collection with Jeff Goldblum and Lawrence Fishburne. Very distinct voice and appearance. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling you before the show. Physically reminds me of Matt, (laughs) also emotionally and socially. Well, I was telling you before the show, I was going to start off by being like, man, I was watching this. Why do I look and act like Danny DeVito in this movie? And you were like, no, it's Cheswick. (laughs) You wish you were as cool as Martini. (laughs) Yeah. That's like Brad Pitt for you. (laughs) That's your best case scenario. Yeah, I will say this. Me driving a car is sort of like Cheswick driving the boat. Yes. Uh, yeah, that would <laughs> Just be Just a you. complete melt. What do you mean go straight? <laughs> Cheswick is prone to temper tantrums. He's also very similar to Martini, who's played by Danny DeVito, because they're both very childlike. Yeah, my spirit children. <laughs> Martini is delusional as well. DeVito was a longtime friend of producer Michael Douglas, and he also was a childhood friend of Jack Nicholson. So he fit right into this crew. Wow. Imagine those guys just out on the town back in the day. That was yeah. like the original DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire and whatever. You're that afraid group. to say the name of their group? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not allowed to be said anymore. 
repressed homosexual Dale Harding, played by William Redfield. He's who, quite a dude. So Dr. Brooks, who was the head of this facility and is in the movie playing a doctor, diagnosed Harding with leukemia during production. And it was terminal. And he's like, you have 18 months to live. And he basically died exactly 18 months later. Oh, wow. And Redfield had to convince Michael Douglas and Saul Zance, the the other producer, to let him finish the film because they were like, I don't, they didn't know what to do. Oh, wow. That sucks. Yeah. Belligerent Max Tabor, played by Christopher Lloyd, also his debut. Yep. Little older than Dorif, but obviously went on to a pretty iconic career thanks That's to right. Back to the Future. Yep. And Clue. And Camp Nowhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's also the epileptics, Seafelt and Fredrickson. There's the quiet but violent minded Scanlon, who oh, yeah. kind of reminded me of me with that look. <laughs> And then there's the other chronic patients that don't really speak right. or contribute. They're much. just sort of like walking around. Or laying down. Yeah, they're like wa- a lot of like walking in circles, it seems like, going on in the background. <laughs> Which I guess is kind of like if you ever saw me at my house, it's just like me pacing. Muttering. Yeah. You're basically like the toys from Toy Story when we're not recording the podcast. You're just <laughs> waiting for me to yeah. come back. That's right. <laughs> R.P. McMurphy. A hell of a fish there, Doc. Yeah. Isn't that a dandy? Yeah. About 40 pounds, ain't it? No, 32. 32. But I'll tell you, it took every bit of strength I had to hold it out there while the guy took the picture. Every damn bit. Probably um, that chain didn't help it any either. Well. You didn't weigh the chain, did you, Doc? No, I didn't weigh the chain. <laughs> but, Tim, I'm awful proud of that picture. That's the first uh, Chinooker I ever caught. It's a nice one. Hmm. Randall Patrick McMurphy, 38 years old. Mm. What can you tell me about uh, why you've been sent over here? Well, I don't know. What's it say there? Mind if I smoke? No, go right ahead. Well, it um, says several things here. Said you've been belligerent, talked when unauthorized, been resentful in attitude toward work in general, that you're lazy. Chewing gum in class. (laughs) Well, the real reason that you've been sent over here is because they wanted you to be evaluated. Yeah. To determine whether or not you're mentally ill. This mm-hmm. is the real reason. Why do you think they might think that? Well, as near as I can figure out, it's because I uh, uh, fight and fuck too much. In and the I... penitentiary? No, no, no. You mean why? Wait a why minute. Why did wait you get sent over here from the work farm? Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, well, I really don't know, Doc. It says here that you went ain't around. Ain't up to me, you know. Well, just take a look it at it. Ain't up to me, though. One, two, three, four. You've got at least five arrests for assault. Yeah. What can you tell me about that? 
Five fights, huh? Rocky Marciano's got 40 and he's a millionaire. That's true. That is true. Of course, it's true that you went in for statutory rape. That's true, is it not, uh, this time? Absolutely true. But, Doc, she was 15 years old, going on 35, Doc, and uh, she told me she was 18 and she was uh, very willing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I practically had to take to sewing my pants shut. But uh, between you and me, uh, she might have been 15. Would you get that little red beaver right up there in front of you? I don't think it's crazy at all, and I don't think you do either. I hear what you're saying. No man alive would resist that, and that's why I got in the jail to begin with. And now they're telling me I'm crazy over here because I don't sit there like a goddamn vegetable. It don't make a bit of sense to me. If that's what being crazy is, then I'm senseless, out of it, gone down the road, wacko. But no more, no less. That's it. Well, to be honest with you, McMurphy, what it says here is that they think, they think you've been faking it in order to get out of your work detail. Oh, what do you like, think about that? Do I look like that kind of guy to you, Doc? Well, let's just be frank for a minute, All uh, right. Randall, if you would. Tell me, do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? Not a thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. Well, you're going to be here for a period for us to evaluate you. We're going to study you. Mm -hmm. We'll make our determinations as to what uh, we're going to do right. and give you the necessary treatment. Uh, and Doc, let me just tell you right. this. I'm here to cooperate with you 100%. 100%. I'll be just right down the line with you. You watch, because I think we ought to get to the bottom of uh, R.P. McMurphy. We actually meet the already alluded to Dr. Spivey, the in-real-life head of this hospital, when McMurphy shows up for his entry interview. And it seems pretty clear that Spivey is suspicious and he doesn't really think that he's mentally ill. Although... If he did actually suspect that, why doesn't he just tell him right up front, you're still going to have to serve your 68 days. Yeah, yeah. They almost seem like they don't know what to do with him. Yeah, they don't. If like, they don't want him there at the beginning, they should just be clear. Like, yeah. this is not some vacation from what you have to do. It's not the same thing. Right. We use electroshock on people. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. They don't want to yeah. show all their cards yet. They have to build up to that. But, as expected, McMurphy is an immediate shock to the system. Very early on, we have that first group session with McMurphy present, and we're hearing about Harding's problems with his promiscuous wife. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a certain lack of engagement where the other patients either aren't interested in talking about this anymore, or they're just hip to McMurphy's presence and they don't want to say anything, or, yeah. uh, or maybe the they were always like this. It was always hard well, to get them true. to talk, yeah. and then it's McMurphy's presence that sort of livens everybody up over time. I I'm not feeling like the rest of them are really relating to like marital problems. I'm not picturing a lot of wives to the rest of the group. And the one guy who is married is not 
able to be satisfied with right. this woman. Yeah. Or to satisfy her. I think there is a mention of Billy attempting to propose to a girl or something, mm. and he gets laughed at for this. Oof. <laughs> All right. Mr. Harding, you've stated on more than one occasion that you suspected your wife of seeing other men. Oh, yes. Yes, very much. I suspect her. I suspect her. Well, maybe you can tell us why you suspect her. Well, I can only speculate as to the reasons why. Have you ever speculated, Mr. Harding, that perhaps you are impatient with your wife because she doesn't meet your mental requirements? Perhaps, but you see, the only thing I can really speculate on, Nurse Ratchet, is the very existence of my life with or without my wife in, in terms of the human relationships, the juxtaposition of one person to another, the form and the content. Hardy, why don't you knock off the bullshit and get to the point? This is the point. This is the point, Tabor. It's not bullshit. I'm not just talking about my wife, I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. I'm not just talking about one person, I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about form, I'm talking about content, I'm talking about interrelationships, I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Finally! <laughs> yeah, Hardy, you're so fucking dumb, I can't believe it. Oh, <laughs> oh. It makes me feel very oh. peculiar, very peculiar when you throw in peculiar? something like that. Why? What does that mean? Peculiar, Harding. Peculiar. Peculiar. I want to tell you guys something. You just don't want to learn anything. You just don't want to listen to anybody. He's got intelligence. Wait a minute. You've never heard the word peculiar? Say, what are you trying to say? Peculiar. Trying to say I'm queer? Is that it? Little Marianne? Little Marjorie Jane? On the street? Huh? Is that it? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Is that your idea of communicating something to me? Is it? Well, is it? Oh, <laughs> they're all crowding in on you, Mr. Harding. They all ganging up on you. Is that news? No, they, they, they sometimes want to gang up on me, too, but Cheswick, I... Well, do me a favor. Huh? Take it easy. Take it easy. And but, stay off my side. But I only want to, I only want to, I only want to help you, I Mr. I understand. But don't you want me to... Please. But I only want to... Please. But I only want to help you, Please. Mr. You see, the other day, you made some allusions, both of you, to sexual, yes, allusions, allusions, not illusions, allusions, to sexual problems I might be having with my wife. All right, let's say it's true. Let's say I know it to be true, but you don't. And if that's your idea of trying to tell me something, you've got another thing coming. No, Hardy, I think you're some kind of morbid asshole or something. Yeah. Oh, oh, asshole makes again. Makes feel peculiar. Peculiar. I've been talking about your wife ever since I can remember. You know, she's on your mind and blah, 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 oh, and on and on and on. I'm talking about my peculiar. wife. When are you going to get that through your face? Fucking hand. What are you going to write up and turn it off? I don't want to hear it. Please, no, just peculiar. I don't want to hear it. I'm tired. I don't want to hear it. But there's an immediate tension with McMurphy, especially between him and Nurse Ratchet. I guess you could kind of speculate on how quickly she 
diagnoses the situation with McMurphy, how quickly uh-huh. she catches on to what's going on. I would say probably pretty quickly. She understands who this guy is. I think so, and yeah. That he doesn't really belong there. She's no dummy. And she's also like, this guy's a threat to what I've got going here. Yeah, and you do wonder if she just sees him as a threat or if also a challenge. Like, I'm going to conquer this guy now. Yeah. Because she gets off on this. Well, there is a key moment where she's the one that makes sure he stays. Yes, which we'll get to. Right. But yes, that is a pretty big moment because that's the moment where... I would say she moves to pure villain. It's clear. Yeah, it's clear that she runs the show, too. The doctors are... They're like, well, they just I don't defer know. to whatever she thinks. Let's ask Ratchet. Part of it is that they're checked out. They clearly don't even give a shit. But it's also and I think that's just part how it's of set up where she's in charge. The sort of almost meaningless work that they're doing. It's- yeah, there doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope in a place like right, this. Right, right, yeah. They probably get a certain amount of money per patient. So the incentive to cure anyone or to send them back into society is pretty minimal. Pretty quickly, McMurphy becomes king fuck of shit city as i like to call <laughs> yeah, it yeah really he's the big man on campus but it is quite a campus the coolest guy at shenanigans <laughs> the prom queen yeah at the welding school right. <laughs> he's trying to get them interested in basketball he's trying to teach chief how to play he's taking over their card games and teaching them how to gamble although you will find out that even that is kind of nefarious because he's using it to win all their cigarettes <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cigarettes in play yeah like, it's definitely played like he's doing this to have this shared moment with him and get these guys, like, having fun. But then Ratchet's like, well, I had to start rationing your cigarettes because you lost them all to McMurphy. Yes, but she's using that as an excuse when sure. we know that she's really punishing them for liking McMurphy, Yeah, basically. yeah, right. But you do believe that he really is winning all their cigarettes. No, you do, but yeah. that's the thing. No matter what his initial motivations are, they're having fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> They and don't it, mind that they're losing their cigarettes that's right. because they're actually having fun. And it seems therapeutic for them, getting this life experience. I don't know that it's curing them, but it seems like they're getting more out of life than they would have otherwise. Yes, and I don't know. I guess there is a scene later on where it does seem like a light switch type moment, but it's more or less something he learns over time, which is these people aren't really sick. Most of them. Some of them are. The chronics, obviously, who don't talk and communicate in a normal way. But a lot of these guys just don't fit into society in a conventional sense. And he sort of understands that over time. And he's like, you're no different than any other asshole. That's right. So even if he hasn't quite had that moment where it's confirmed to him yet, which will happen in a pretty dramatic scene, he's starting to sense that pretty quickly. That these are just guys that are having a hard time, but they're not sick. Right. Poof, man. It's a tough phrase. (laughs) There's some clashing over the music that Nurse Ratchet chooses to play in the ward, and then also the pills, which McMurphy pretends to take and then doesn't. But it's inevitable, this confrontation. It's a butting of the heads. He questions everything. He questions authority, but he also questions their structure and their regimen. He wants to watch the World Series. And so he's challenging the other patients, too. He wants to push them to shake it up, to live a little. He wants to watch the World Series. She doesn't want them to change their routine. They put it to a vote. The first time, it doesn't go great. Correct. Yeah. Eventually, they try it again. and He's going to have to try to galvanize the group. The game is sort of rigged against him. 
there's a brief shot of Michael Berryman, who plays Ellis. He's the uh, distinct-looking gentleman from The Hills Have Eyes. Okay. Very familiar, recognizable, memorable yeah. face. Right. Eventually, and it's probably one of my favorite scenes, is when McMurphy refuses to be defeated. And this is what I think really gets under Ratchet's skin is his never-say-die attitude, and he just pretends that he's watching the game. Oh, yeah. And he starts doing the play-by-play. That's right. A lot of cursing in this play-by-play commentary, by the way. He knocks it out of the fucking park! He attracts the attention of the other patients. They gather around. They sort of buy into it. He even screams at one point, somebody get me a fucking wiener before I die, (laughs) which I'm sure is something you've yelled before. But they are all cheering there immediately, like, pulled into this. Yeah, I think they're attracted to his imagination and vitality, which is something that's been lacking in their lives. And it's in immediate conflict with the world that Ratchet has created. That's right. Kofax. Kofax kicks. He delivers. It's up the middle. It's a base hit. Richardson is rounding first. He's going for second. The ball's in the deep right center. Davidson over in the corner, cut the ball off. Here comes the throw, Richardson around the guards. He goes into second, he slides. He's in there, he's safe. It's a double, he's in there, Martin. Look at Richardson, he's on second base. Kovacs is in big fucking trouble. Big trouble, baby. All right, here's Tresh as the next batter. Tresh looks in, Kovacs. Kovacs gets the signs from Roseborough. He kicks once, he pumps, he fires. It's a strike. Kovacs' curveball is snapping off like a fucking firecracker. All right, here he comes with the next pitch. Tresh swings. It's a long fly ball in deep left center. And so McMurphy and Nurse Ratchet become locked in a battle of wills, the unstoppable force against the immovable object. McMurphy steals the field trip bus. It's a school bus that they use for little trips for good patients or for certain types of patients. He just steals it. Yeah, well, this is a moment where seemingly he could have escaped on his own, too. Well, at this point, he doesn't realize that he wants to escape. That's true, yeah. Escaping the premises with several other unwitting patients. Picks up his lady friend named Candy. Who seems like a good sport. Oh, yeah. Just a good person to have in the crew. When she gets on the bus, she says, are you all crazies? (laughs) Cheswick just nods. (laughs) (laughs) McMurphy takes the group onto a borrowed boat to go fishing on the Pacific Ocean all while encouraging them to discover their own abilities and find self-confidence. It is interesting that this dock worker obviously knows that this isn't right, but the fact that he doesn't do more to stop this, this is clearly a shady situation. What's he going to do? I don't know. Get a gun? There's got to be something back in there. That's the guy that helped them discover Will Sampson to play Chief. Oh, wow. Just sort of a local Oregon dude. He has... Cheswick steer the boat. The other guys are fishing off the side. They're all having a good time. He's trying to bang Candy in the, the cabin, cabin of the boat. Yeah. That goes awry. <laughs> With Cheswick's bizarre sense of direction. When they were out there on the ocean filming these scenes for a couple days, they experienced just like brutal seasickness up oh, and yeah. down the cast. I'm sure. Especially the first day. I think the second day ended up being calmer seas. This is also the time where we're introduced to Billy's interest in candy, which will come up later. Yeah, in sort of a pivotal moment. You do sort of expect 
graver consequences after this. That's true. They just come back to the coast with the boat. They've got these giant fish that they're holding above their heads in celebration. And then when they get back to the hospital, it's clear that Ratchet is pissed, and she knows that McMurphy is a legitimate threat. And I guess it's sort of in the aftermath of this where she clamps down on the cigarettes and the gambling, but it's never really distinct. There's never really that clear-cut moment where she's punishing them for this, or it's just kind of accepted that yeah, this that's happened, true. right? Which is weird. You would think there would be more. To other stuff, that's right. <laughs> you would think that this is where they'd take the long, hard look at McMurphy and be like, "Should we have this dude here?" I mean, obviously, this would not have happened. Nothing even remotely close to this would happen without him being in the mix. But as you alluded to, it's in the aftershock of this incident where Ratchet voices the side to keep McMurphy there when the doctors don't believe that he's actually mentally ill and want to get rid of him and send him back to prison. Are we doing a disservice by just passing along the garbage elsewhere? Yeah, she comes at it from the perspective that she's always on the side of good. Uh huh. She's dressing up her true intentions, her cruel intentions, if you will. Absolutely. In the novel and the film, McMurphy makes a decision to win the hearts and souls of the men by making Big Nurse lose control. The essential conflict is clear with all of its ramifications. There are some minor differences. I think in the, in the novel, Harding is more direct in his challenge to McMurphy to use his, quote, weapon against Big Nurse. And McMurphy rightly assumes this to be his penis, and he declines. He rationalizes his refusal, and the men are clearly disappointed. They think that if he fucks her, that something will happen. Unfortunately, I think probably in the context of the time, I don't know that they're necessarily concerned with consent in uh, okay. the idea, yeah, right. but <laughs> who knows what they're thinking. They're in a mental institution. Who knows? Yeah, what yeah, thinking. yeah. It's also a little clearer in the book, I think, there's this foreshadowing as to what could happen. And so right. there's this idea that what happens in the movie is sort of something that could have potentially been on McMurphy's mind. Whereas in the film, they don't really... Introduce that that's something that's happening. Right. They do have the electroshock stuff, but they never talk about yeah. lobotomies. If there's any like foreshadowing, that. it's how he's acting when he comes back from the electroshock. He kind of is walking around like, dazed and incoherent before winking at chief yeah but even in that moment which we'll get to later it's clear that ratchet doesn't believe it you can That's see right. her roll around well yeah yeah, yeah. Walks in. she's clearly more concerned with cutting mcmurphy down to size oh yeah than anything else she wants to control him this definitely just becomes about winning for each of them she's not interested even on the surface with his health in the book but in the movie she does dress it up more She knows that ultimately her triumph depends on her ability to prevent McMurphy from becoming a hero, which is something she ultimately fails at. Some of the patients play a basketball game against some of the orderlies, and Chief is involved. Yeah. And I was thinking about it from the perspective of the progress that McMurphy makes with Chief in terms of basketball. Right. It's sort of a measuring stick as far as how much progress he's making with the men. True both from the perspective of the audience, who doesn't know the truth about Chief yet, and also just from the perspective of winning Chief over. It doesn't even matter if what's really going on with him is a lie or right, whatever. Right. Yeah. And 
Chief actually performs in the game. He stands oh, yeah. by the hoop. He puts the ball in the basket. He I even goaltends his own hoop. I think he has a triple-double. <laughs> in order to exert her authority over McMurphy and the other patients, Nurse Ratchet confiscates and rations the patient's cigarettes and suspends their card-playing privileges. However, there is one vital piece of information that Mac is missing in all of this. An orderly tells him that the judge's time sentence does not apply for people who are deemed to be criminally insane. So instead of 68 days, it's up to the staff at the hospital how long he would be staying. Uh huh. He's not going to just get out when his sentence is up. The sentence yeah, yeah. is essentially thrown out the window. He could be there forever. Right, right. Shockwaves to McMurphy. Yes, which also should trigger something in the audience at a sense of injustice to how insane that seems. Yeah, really. The icing on the cake is the revelation that only McMurphy, Chief, and Tabor, Christopher Lloyd's character, as well as some of the chronics who don't really factor in, are involuntarily committed. The rest of the crew, the cast of characters that always is hanging around McMurphy, are self-committed and could leave at any time but are too afraid to do so. This yeah. comes out during a group session. Does this uh, revelation set McMurphy off a bit? <laughs> <laughs> he has some thoughts on that. Yeah, that might even be the opening clip, his yeah. advice oh, as to what Billy should be doing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think that this might even be the moment that changes his whole perspective on what's going on and what leads to, ultimately, his own demise when he has a chance to escape. Right. I think that unlike Ratchet, who does not seem to have any empathy, this triggers some sort of an empathy within McMurphy. And he now cares for these guys yeah. in a different way because he understands that they're not being held prisoner, but that they're... Well, that's the thing. You're like, man, how bad must you view your life if you're here by choice? Yeah. They are being held prisoner, but not in the traditional sense, is I guess what I want to say. Like, they're not being forced to be there... But once they're there, he sees how Nurse Ratchet keeps them down. And so, in a way, they're a prisoner to their own anxiety or their own emotions or their own inability to deal with things because that's the way she likes it. During that same group session, Cheswick bursts into a fit and demands his cigarettes. This leads to all hell breaking loose. <laughs> yes, it does. Mac eventually just breaks the nurse's station window to get him the cigarettes. Orderlies are grabbing Cheswick, which causes Mac to fight with the orderlies. Mac gets pinned to the ground, and then Chief intervenes out of nowhere, and we've got a full-on melee at that point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a brawl at the institution. I still don't really know, watching the movie, how the fuck any of these guys are stopping Chief. No, no. He's not just tall. Oh, yeah, he's bulky. He's huge. Right. And we don't really see how they stop him right it just yeah, sort of no. cuts to any haymaker he would throw would be the knockout punch you would just be dead yeah <laughs> as a result of this incident ratchet sends chief cheswick and mcmurphy to what is affectionately called the shock shop for insubordination and so this is the cruel inhumane underbelly of this institution and really the dark heart of this movie because you have to think about it from this perspective in what world, in what fucking America where cruel and unusual punishment is illegal, does it make sense for them to use shock therapy as a punishment? Yes, 
Shock therapy is something that still exists to this day and can be used as a treatment. Uh-huh. A treatment yeah. for specific things. You don't use it as a punishment whenever the patients, some of which Cheswick out of the three, are voluntarily at this hospital. That's right, yeah. It's insane. <laughs> but the movie, again, doesn't insult your intelligence by just telling that to you. You just have to sort of realize that, like, what is going on here? This doesn't right. even make sense. Everyone else that works there is like, should we be doing this? And they're like, well, Ratchet said to. <laughs> well, it does sort of have that Nazi feel of like, well, we're just following orders. That's right. It's not a great time for old Chessy. doesn't take it well. No. <laughs> that this is going to be happening. <laughs> so no. us two guys doing this fucking place. Let's get out of here. Out. Canada. Canada. We'll be there before these son of a bitches know what hit them. While waiting, Mac offers Chief a stick of gum and discovers that Chief can actually speak and hear when Chief thanks him for the gum. He has just been faking his deaf muteness to avoid engaging with anyone, which is beyond brilliant. You don't have to contribute to this stupid fucking group session. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately for him, though, since he's involuntarily committed, the likelihood that he would ever be allowed to leave is pretty much zero. It seems like they would just keep him at that point. Well, I don't think you're proving anything by never talking. Right. There's some talk of escaping to Canada, seeing how that would go. So the electroconvulsive therapy scene is pretty traumatic. It's pretty brutal looking. Yeah, it does have a gritty realism to it. Yeah, because I think that even though there's clearly a tension and everything, that you could view One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a comedy to this point. Yeah, in quite a few of the scenes, yes. It's funny and enjoyable, and of course, Nicholson is charming and engaging and everything, but this is the reality of of what's going on here and what the story is really about. After the trip to the shock shop, McMurphy returns to the ward, pretending to be brain damaged, but then ultimately reveals it all to be a joke, seemingly ever more determined to defeat Ratchet. As I said... She doesn't seem to be buying it for a second. She rolls her eyes when she sees what he's doing. Right, right. 
Some of the other patients, though, seem to be tricked by it. Sure, yeah. Including Not Chief, sure really. how Chief got back there faster. I guess yeah. maybe the shocks just have no effect on him because <laughs> he's so big. Yeah. So he's already ready to go back, and then McMurphy's maybe taking a longer time to recover or whatever. Maybe that's more explained in the book. Who knows? But, yeah, he joins the group session, and it's a very subtle moment. But if you pay attention to Fletcher's performance in this scene, it's it's very effective. McMurphy refers to her as Mildred. Yes. And she sort of blushes and reacts to it. Like he's caught her off guard with this intimacy that is sort of forbidden. And then he immediately follows that up with the sex joke about lighting up some girl because he's all full of electricity or whatever. Oh, yeah. That she'll light up like a pinball machine or whatever he says. And <laughs> right. she does have that visible reaction. And so he's like getting under her skin even more. Yeah, yeah. And if this was like a boxing match, it'd be like he just landed a big punch or something. Like he, he definitely got to her for a minute right. there. And now because of the escalation from Nurse Ratched's side, things definitely ramp up here. And so that night we're introduced to Turkle, played by Scatman Crothers. Oh, yeah. Nice little precursor to The Shining. Yeah, and it was very nearly a situation where we would have the three principals from The Shining in this film because I guess Foreman and Douglas or whoever was involved, they went to go see Thieves Like Us, the Altman film, to check out Shelley Duvall as possibly playing Candy. Oh, yeah. That's how they ended up discovering Louise Fletcher. That would have been insane if she was in this. Yeah, I said to you earlier, there's no way that Kubrick would just recast the same three people. Yeah, yeah. That we would have a different cast in The Shining, right. I think. McMurphy wants to escape, and he wants to escape right away, but the chief is still unsure. I think that's a, a pretty powerful scene when he's talking about what happened to his father yeah. and how he's not as big as McMurphy. He's limited. And McMurphy's like, what the fuck are you talking yeah. about? You're a damn tree trunk. <laughs> but it's just this big, brave persona that he's talking about. Chief. Chief, I can't take it no more. I gotta get out of here. I can't. I just can't. It's easier than you think, Chief. For you, maybe. You're a lot bigger than me. Why, Chief, you're about as big as a goddamn tree trunk. My papa's real big. He did like he pleased. That's why everybody worked on him. The last time I seen my father, he was blind in the cedars from drinking. And every time he put the bottle to his mouth, he don't suck out of it. It sucks out of him until he shrunk so wrinkled and yellow. Even the dogs don't know him. Killed him, huh? I'm not saying they killed him. They just worked on him the way they worked on you. Instead of leaving, McMurphy orchestrates a Christmas party for the ward since Ratchet and the regular orderlies have left for the night, Turkle ends up proving to be a fairly easy bribe to let the girls in. <laughs> really? A $20 bill, the promise of some booze, and maybe something else. Yeah. 
Candy arrives with her friend Rose. Just a couple of good time gals ready for a party. Sure, yeah. Always good to have a couple in the crew. I enjoy the close call with Turkle's night supervisor where they're yeah. all hiding in the room. <laughs> then they're making the noise. So then he just to... somehow destroys this room in like two seconds. Well, you know, they're yeah. all in a mental institution in the dark. <laughs> yeah, then Turkle has to fall on the grenade by revealing candies there. And right. The supervisor just walks away pretty easily. I, I would have thought she'd be more like Ratchet and this was going to be She's a full thing. She's cutting him a break. It's the holiday spirit. And the party turns into total destruction. The ward is just a mess. There's so much alcohol flowing. Yeah, yeah. Decorations going dancing music i guess at the start of the plan i was never envisioning it and it makes sense for mcmurphy that there was not really going to be a plan to try to like clean this up that it was that mcmurphy knows going into this that it's going to be revealed it seems well yeah he thinks he's not going to be there but also he probably thinks that they need to do this yeah they need to stand up to ratchet and just say fuck you we did this so what After the party, McMurphy and Chief prepare to escape, taking the two ladies with them. But Billy's got something on his mind. Mac invites Billy to come along, but he's not quite ready for something like that yet. He's very timid. Very timid boy. He's in his comfort zone here in this mental institute. But he's definitely got eyes for candy, which started back on the boat. Sure, yeah. I really admire Brad Dourif's performance in this film. It's very believable. You get it. Because it's not a novel, they don't have time to explain the right. inner workings yeah. of everybody's thing. But you get it. He's got an overly domineering, probably abusive mother that's led him here. This will later be used against him. Right. He stutters because he's so anxious and afraid of everything. But he's in his 20s probably at this point, likely a virgin. Candy is super nice. (laughs) (laughs) She is nice. I would describe her as a hell of a gal. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that she's willing to just go ahead and do this is something. (laughs) Definitely something. Well, you know. It's not nothing. bored in Salem, Oregon. (laughs) It doesn't seem like Candy's got a lot going on in life. Candy's a free spirit. It's a holdover from the free love. That's right. Yeah. Mac arranges for a quote-unquote date between Billy and Candy. He's like, it's got to be a quick date, though. (laughs) (laughs) Think of me. While waiting for Billy and Candy to do their thing in one of the private rooms, which, yes, Billy does sort of have to be forced to actually do. They have to drag him in there. Yes. Shut the door behind him. But I think once he's there, he enjoys himself. While waiting, everyone gets drunk. Mac and Chief and even Rose, the other lady, fall asleep. Oh, no. And so no one gets to make an escape. I was wondering, it's not something that's covered in the film at all, but what do they do on the weekends? I can't imagine Ratchet's working seven days a week, no matter how committed she is to this thing. There's a weekend crew. I don't know. It's probably a rotating cast of orderlies, and there's just no therapy sessions on the weekends. I was wondering who would show up on Christmas Day, and if this is supposed to be Christmas Day. Yeah, that is true. That is odd. Because she was there the night before. We see Nurse Ratched leaving before this whole party sequence takes place. She's got her nighttime hat on. She's got different hats. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and 
she shows up bright and early the next morning. It never really specifically says it's Christmas Day, though. No. But it just I, has that vibe. I guess this just is her life, this place. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Ratchet arrives in the morning to find the ward a complete disaster. Booze everywhere, property destroyed, the window wide open. I was thinking it must be fucking freezing in there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) People like, this must have been Cheswick. I'm surprised she doesn't react bigger to Turkle. Turkle's passed out on the couch. Well, I was like, Turkle's fired. Oh, for sure, but you would expect her to react more to that. You would think after the close call with the supervisor, he would have done more to make sure that like the night was put to bed. Yeah. But we don't really even see what happens after that. The party just gets underway after the night supervisor leaves and then we never Not another check in. Yeah, he is involved in some of the partying and then I guess he just gets drunk and carried away. Yeah. Billy is eventually discovered with Candy, naked, asleep, and intertwined. So in her typical passive aggressive fashion, Nurse Ratchet aims to embarrass him in front of everyone, especially when she sees that he's being treated like a hero for what has happened. He's getting a little bit of an applause for Oh sure, yeah. Going to Pound Town. Not a lot of this going on in this crew. No, probably not. Some of them may have had their day. Sure. Just depends. Yeah. Martini certainly. <laughs> I think mentally Martini's supposed to be like twelve. <laughs> um, I can explain everything. Please do, Billy. Explain everything. Everything? (laughs) Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother is going to take this. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t- 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 tell her, Miss Ratchet. I don't have to tell her. Your mother and I are old friends, you know that. <sighs> um, please n- 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 don't... Tell my Don't you think you should have thought of that before you took that woman in that room? No, no. I didn't. You mean she dragged you in there by force? She, she, she did. Everybody did. Everybody? Who did? You tell me who did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Murphy. Miss Ra Ratchet. Please, please don't tell me. Mr. Warren. My mother, please. Would you see that the men are washed and ready for the day? Miss Ratchet, please, 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 please don't, don't tell my mother. Mr. My Washington. Mother. Yeah. Billy actually does manage to stand up to her at first, even temporarily overcoming his stutter, if you notice. That's right. Yeah. It's this moment of change for him. I would say that this seemingly signifies for a flash that Max treatment, for lack of a better term, worked better than anything that's been going on in the hospital. Yes. I would say that's at least implied by the movie. <laughs> Whether or not you're actually going to buy that <laughs> is up to the viewer. I would, I would maybe even argue that Candy's treatment. <laughs> <laughs> There's no better cure, folks. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, especially for a young guy, good-looking guy, He's yeah. got a, some problem. I, I was very envious of that hair. He was wild hair. Sure, yeah. David Lynchian type hair, I would really? say. Really? Yeah. Good for him, son of a bitch. But you get to a certain point, and if you haven't fired that gun... Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's going to stay in the holster. And yeah, obviously you can fire it into your hand or a sock or a <laughs> Kleenex, but... Oh, is that... We're not sticking with the... <laughs> the coded wording anymore? I'm just saying yeah. that, okay, yeah, it's you You walk that line, you start going down like the crude territory that it's just sex, but it's not just sex. Mm-hmm. Sex is just symbolic. It, it could be anything. It could be having a beer. It could be hanging out with buddies. Yeah. Playing a baseball game. It could be whatever. Whatever Some an experience. Sort of riding a roller coaster. Visceral life experience. Yeah, it could just yeah. be anything. Right. These people aren't living anymore. They're living in this sheltered room where they don't do anything need matthew mcconaughey to show up you gotta keep living man <laughs> l-i-v-i-n but when nurse ratchet threatens to inform billy's mother what he's done he cracks under the pressure immediately starts stuttering again oh no and then even kind of throws mac under the bus in a pretty embarrassing moment oh boy ratchet has billy put in the doctor's office to wait course he's having a meltdown as he's being dragged away so he goes from hero to a pretty mortifying moment and then just seconds later mcmurphy who still has turkle's keys unlocks the window and then ends up punching an orderly as he and chief are about to escape and like you said you would never really accuse mcmurphy of being the brightest but i know the plan goes off the rails but they couldn't even take a little time when they're alone to figure out which key is the right key you know the amount of time yeah. burnt trying to find the key. Yeah. Well, I guess there was some panic about whether or not Turkle would realize that they had the keys. True. Because Turkle just an embarrassment for a, <laughs> for his job, though. Good Lord. Well, assuming, we hear so much. Oh, this is my fucking job, man. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. you don't seem great at it. Even assuming Turkle gets fired, he might realize that he doesn't have his keys and then there's not going to be that private moment. Because you would think, yeah. okay, you've got the keys. Just wait till the moment's right to True. break out. But right. he might not have the keys that much longer. So they go for it. 
And then they have the moment because yes, the other orderly runs over trying to stop them, but then there's that. Although scream. I was honestly, if there wasn't the scream, I was interested to see what was going to happen because I think Chief would have just straight up decked this orderly. <laughs> I know. How much are these orderlies getting paid? If I took a look at Chief, I'd be like, "All right, see ya. Yeah. Go ahead." <laughs> yeah, I'm not about to want. get my face punched in. <laughs> yeah. Especially later when he fucking hugs McMurphy and yeah. you get to look at those paws. It would have Holy been like shit. <laughs> the Red Viper of Dorne versus the Mountain. He looks like he's wearing <laughs> baseball gloves. Yeah, That's yeah. how big his hands are. Right. But yes, they are alone at the window because a nurse screams and they're free and clear. Candy and Rose are waiting in a car. Or they're not in their car, but there's a car. They could just leave. Yes. Get out of there. Obviously, they're in Oregon. They're close to the Canadian border. Since they're technically involuntarily committed that means they would be criminals and fugitives but it's the 70s you get across that canadian border just keep driving i don't know how much effort are they? they're not murderers no, i don't think anybody's right. gonna yeah yeah be true killing themselves right. to bring well i don't know what chief did but yeah i don't, I don't think they're gonna be killing themselves to bring them back however because of the scream everyone runs towards that direction and the other nurse, Nurse Pilbo, I think is her name. Okay, comes yeah, yeah, out. That's right. She's covered in blood. Oh boy, mm-hmm. we know where this is heading. Billy has committed suicide in the doctor's office by slitting his throat with a piece of broken glass, and it's just pandemonium. Mainly because he didn't want his mom to know he had sex. Yeah, yeah, I get I it. Get. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think I would be the opposite. I'd rather slit my throat than hear about my mother having sex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ratchet struggles to control the situation. She wants everyone to go back to normal, back to the routine already. She sees that everything's slipping for a minute. Mac has come back rather than leave and has seen Billy dead with his own eyes and finally snaps. He pounces on Ratchet, strangling her and taking her down to the floor. Finally, orderlies intervene, saving her life because... Uh, It does seem like they stand by for a while. There's an extended period of time. They're talking it out. Let's just see what happens. (laughs) It's a violent moment, but it's a long time coming. And I'm sure that because of how things were perceived in the 70s, this was a more cathartic moment back then. The violence is hard to watch, even with Ratchet being horrible. Yeah. Because it's just so... It's Watching someone be suffocated. It's visceral and like animalistic. It's very real feeling. I was just thinking about how there was that prequel show, Ratchet. Okay. With, is it Sarah Paulson in the lead role? Possibly. My voice getting higher. In the lead role. I don't know the prequel show, Ratchet. Was it a Netflix show? Or was it... That seems, you know what, now that you say it, uh, I don't know. It was was What's-His-Face, of course. That American Horror Story guy? Yeah, Glee and everything. Then it... Ryan something? Ryan Murphy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it was Sarah Paulson as Ratchet. Okay, that makes sense then. It's like the type of show that my sister, my youngest sister would watch because she watches all of those Ryan Murphy right. things. And tell you how great it is. No, no, we don't talk. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but really, did we need a Ratchet origin story? Did we need that? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. But, you know, we don't need a lot of what's out there now. That's true. Sometime later, after everything is calmed down, we don't know how much time later, but it seems probably a few days or a week or something, Nurse Ratchet is wearing a neck brace and speaking with a weak and strained voice. 
I think she's selling it. No, I think it's yeah. I, I think know. it's legit because she wouldn't want to sell it for sure. Yeah, she needs everyone to know how tough she is. Harding has taken over the card game, which is allowed again. Rumors circulate of McMurphy's possible escape, but no one knows what's happened to him. But one night, Chief sees McMurphy being returned to his bed. He greets him, elated that Mac has kept his word and didn't leave without him. Because Chief has changed. He feels as big as a damn mountain now. Okay. It's our moment. But Chief soon notices Mac is unresponsive and physically limp. He discovers lobotomy scars on Mac's forehead, and the McMurphy we knew is gone. Yeah. Really a devastating blow. In a way, once you see it play out the first time, I think you realize the inevitability of this story and what they were trying to go for. But yeah, the first time, it's definitely a gut punch. Yeah. There's not going to be some super happy ending. The soul and charisma and freedom and everything that this guy represented is just gone. Chief tearfully hugs McMurphy and says, you're coming with me, before smothering him to death with a pillow, thus setting him free. Mac, he said you escaped. I knew you wouldn't leave without me. I was waiting for you. Now we can make it, Mac. I feel big as a damn mountain. Chief then lifts the massive hydrotherapy fountain off of the floor, smashes it through the window gates, and escapes alone. The remaining patients, having all been woken up by the noise, watch and cheer him on. That's right. One of the great memorable endings, one of the defining endings of the 70s for sure. Absolutely. And this is one of the era-defining films, a la The Graduate, Easy Rider, Bonnie and Clyde, etc., This was coming at a time when the 60s were gone and the malaise of the 70s that we all know. Uh Uh-huh. In a way, I think it may have even served as a reminder, I guess, to the spirit of how things were in the idea of fighting back and the counterculture. Because I do think that because of how depressing some of the 70s felt to people, it it probably seemed like the man had just won and that yeah. there was nothing you could do. But th- something like this maybe would re-spark some fire, some fight in people. And as I said, the people in this film are, are not necessarily sick in, the, in a conventional sense. They just don't fit into society. And it's clear that Nurse Ratchet has no concern for improvement 
or healing that her and by extension the ward are concerned with punishment, obedience, submission, control, power, but not actually healing. Certainly. It's much more about oppression. It's also important to remember that even though Mac was lobotomized and then subsequently euthanized by his friend, he still won in the end. He never relented. He never caved in to Ratchet. Right. And he changed the people he came in contact with, which is exemplified through Chief. Yeah, it would almost be like a defeating blow for all of them if... Well, not almost. It would certainly be a defeating blow for all of them if Mac was just lobotomized. He was still hanging around the place. Yeah, he became the, the chronic oh, guy yeah. in the background right. just laying there. Oh, how defeating that would be. But because Chief euthanizes him and then escapes, his spirit lives on. Billy's moment with Candy and his subsequent suicide is crucial not only to the story and to moving the plot forward, but also in understanding the power dynamic, understanding Ratchet's true nature and her true goals in the ward. She feels her power slipping away in that moment and resorts to something that she knows, because she's a medical professional, Mm -hmm. will damage Billy. There's absolutely no reason for her to want to damage Billy other than to maintain the power she's constructed. And even she though knows she's, what the source of his anxiety is. And it's even his though mother. she's doing it to Billy, it definitely feels like she's doing it at Mac. No, yeah, but also everyone else. Well, yeah, she's right. doing it to everyone else. I'm in control, and don't you ever forget it. Yeah, yeah. But she's doing something that is counterproductive to his healing because, as I said, he stopped stuttering that moment. He actually shows that maybe his anxiety is abating and that he's maybe making steps in the right direction that there's progress but she's willing to pull that all away just to retain her own power and she uses the weapon against billy that is his main bugaboo which is his mom mac is not a threat because he's abrasive or because he doesn't follow the rules he's a threat because he inspires his fellow patients to stand up for themselves that's right he inspires the change. It's not that he just comes in doing his own thing or that he yeah. cusses her out or he doesn't follow the rules. Well, or, or even that like one or two of them are buying into this. He's really able to galvanize the entire group. Yeah, and that's where the cult of personality comes in. That's why you need to have Nicholson yeah, in yeah. this role because you need to believe that he's a leader of men and these guys would follow him. Even Harding, who he rags on the most. Yeah. Hard on. <laughs> So that'll do it for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, one of the AFI top films. Yeah, really just an all-time classic. One of three films to win the five major awards at the Oscars. Huge hit, huge cultural touchstone moment. If you haven't seen it before, check it out. And instead of recommendations, we're going to do something else. But first, if you haven't seen any of those films that Nicholson was nominated for in the run-up to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, there's your recommendation. Just check yeah, those really. out. We'd covered five easy pieces on the show. There's probably some other ones we would cover as well. But Chinatown, The Last Detail, yeah. Easy Rider. All hits. Pretty much anything from, well, not anything. <laughs> there's some movies that he made in the 70s that aren't great, I guess. But there's a lot of home runs in there. It's always disappointing when you see that he's teaming up with Warren Beatty and Mike Nichols is directing and it's the fortune and you're just like how is this not good? I know yeah I know <laughs> yeah 
but there's a lot of great stuff. I actually made a pledge to check out a lot of the stuff that I hadn't seen yet. A yeah, lot of yeah. the later 70s material and then some of the 80s and 90s stuff that I had never seen before. I'm going to watch it this year. So that's my situation. All righty. So that brings us to our final segment, which is not recommendations. It's actually just an abbreviated give us a second. <laughs> a give us a second that we talked about and said we were going to do. Yeah. And we're not doing it because the moment of relevancy has passed. So I don't think anyone cares about this. Just going to give you a little bonus. little bonus. We're, of course, talking about Pam and Tommy, the Hulu show about Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee and the sex tape scandal from the mid-90s that in a lot of ways was a precursor to a lot of other things that have happened over the last few years, really, with cell phone hacks and clouds right? And celebrity nudes and sex tapes and sort of paved the way even for Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian in a sense. But Hulu made a show about it. We were going to do a Give Us a Second because of all the del- different delays that have happened. This show came and went. No one seems to uh-huh. care about it anymore anyway. <laughs> And I don't really know that there was enough to really even get like 30 solid minutes out of it regardless. So yeah, let's just talk about it now. I made Matt watch it, so we're going to talk well, about it on the show. Real quick before we even get into the actual content. Annapurna, I-, I would like to see succeed. Them making this soiree into a series now. But it's weird with the streaming stuff because nothing really seems like it succeeds or fails if it's straight to streaming. Yeah. I'm checking now. It has a 7.3 on IMDb with 26,199 ratings. So I've definitely seen shows with less ratings than sure, that. And 7.3 yeah. is not bad. But the critical consensus seemed sort of mixed. And it just didn't generate a ton of buzz. True. So I kind of think that it might be a little bit of a failure in terms a bomb. of generating any interest. But yes, you're right. The streaming stuff does cover up the fact that a lot of this shit would die. Yeah. Especially Seth Rogen's career. Like I mean, th- my right. God, if they released that Pickle movie into theater, oh, I, I don't think he'd be allowed to yeah. make another movie. Because <laughs> that would have gen- bombed right. so hard. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And that's sort of dead with some of that. Like, are you protected from it a little bit? The idea of going to theaters with something and nobody seeing it at all and it being like a crushing blow to any career trajectory. Which brings me to one of the things that could have potentially made Pam and Tommy a little bit more interesting is if Craig Galipsy, who directed the first three episodes, was involved in the show, if he would have made this a two-hour movie, released yeah. it into theaters in the same style and genre as his other film, I, Tanya, I think you might have had something there. If you would have played up the trashy tabloid element, which is not obviously what the thesis of this show ends up being and that's fine although that's going to bring me to my biggest point in a minute (laughs) but what you're left with is a show that's never great it's never terrible but it's never great it's somewhat engaging you learn a little bit more about a story that you've probably heard some of especially if you were alive during the mid-90s when yeah pamela anderson ruled the world i wouldn't say the tonal shifts of the show are exactly seamless oh no when you start off and there's a part where Tommy Lee is talking to his dick. Yes. And it's like a cartoon responding back to him. But then there's also parts that seem like are really dark and grim and, and like then there's like sad parts. Pam's but, having a miscarriage. Yeah, yeah. It's like she's it, being humiliated for no reason. It just doesn't feel like the same show throughout it. I know. It couldn't quite 
figure out what it wanted to do. It's based off of the 2014 Rolling Stone article, Pam and Tommy, The Untold Story of the World's Most Famous Sex Tape by Amanda Chicago Lewis. I think one of the people involved was Robert Siegel, who wrote The Wrestler, the Aronofsky film, which we covered on this show. He wrote on all of the episodes, of which there were eight. Like I said, Glipsy directs the first three. And then the next five, which I think were all directed by women, almost served to make you feel guilty for enjoying the first three. Uh, yeah. Although, I th- I might be wrong, but I think that there's a line you can walk where you can in- have a good time enjoying the story yeah. and still be on the right side of it. I think so. And understand. And they actually fuck it up so bad in this show. <laughs> because Seth Rogen, who was one of the producers casts himself as the guy who steals the tape. We're given a backstory on this guy. Right. We're almost made to feel sympathy for this guy. Too much screen time for him. But even like his whole, I guess, attempt at redemption is bizarre. Yeah, which, if that's true in real life, that's great, but it furthers to muddy your point by the end of the show, which is that he is the primary villain. I know that the show is putting out there that society at large is the villain. Uh And that's true. Pam is treated terribly. Yes. She's humiliated by tons of people over and over again because she had the audacity to pose naked for Playboy, which essentially strips her of any rights. Yeah. And yeah, and she's definitely portrayed as the victim and rightfully so. You are like, yeah, this is fucked up that this happened to her. But I will say, I was finding myself disagreeing or feeling like, the insinuation that this caused her to miss some big moment as some leading actress. Well, yeah, that's another thing they throw in there. I thought that was a reach. Yeah. They... I, I don't think you have to go that far to be like, this screwed up the trajectory of her career for us to feel bad here. And it may have, but not in the way that they say. Yeah, she true, wasn't going right. to get cast in LA, LA Confidential. Confidential. I mean, maybe she could have been in Austin Powers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I would have bought that. But I don't know. Even... Her missing the audition for Austin Powers, though, almost seems unrelated to the tape. Yeah. I, it was like kind of hard to even know what they were saying there. But we all saw Barbed Wire. Right, right. It. I, it stinks. Yeah, it's I not know. a good movie. She's yeah. not really a good actress. I wouldn't exactly say she was Meryl Streep on Baywatch either. No. She could have potentially been given more to do on Baywatch. It was fucking Baywatch. I yeah, don't know if right. they needed to protect it so much by not letting her do her monologue. Or yeah, exactly. She was sad about. Right, yeah. But, I mean, it was fucking Baywatch, yeah. who cares? And it was a time in our culture where people were treated a certain way, so they want to make sure her bathing suit is wedged up her butt crack a certain amount, sure, yeah. or that her boobs look a certain way, and so she's treated like a piece of meat, and, and she's obviously not that's even portrayed to do her monologue or Horribly, and, and rightfully so. And then once this tape comes out, they don't take it seriously, and they just sort of let it happen. It's an insane moment in time, though, which is probably why we're very interested in this content insane to me like being a whatever was this 96 that this came out the actual tape i think it blew up in 96 and came out in 95 yeah yeah so i'm thinking like 96 i don't know i'm like nine years old (laughs) and you know this is just on the news not the sex scenes but her swimming nude in the ocean yeah like like, pixelated yeah. yeah and i know like obviously i just know this person is like a stunning hot blonde that and i'm just like this is insane Right. I cannot believe I can see this on the internet. Not that 
I could get there on my own, but would eventually through friends. And then you see it and it's like, oh my gosh, sex is horrifying. (laughs) Yeah, well, things have changed. The person that hacked the celebrity phones and led to all the nude leaks from four or five years ago, that person went to jail. Right. Whereas seemingly not much happened as a result of this. In fact, it was published by Penthouse as a retaliation against Playboy and Hefner, and it was protected under Bizarre. free speech, yeah, which yeah. was sort of crazy because it was stolen property. Really? It was just a completely different time. But It yes. does just seem like one of those things where somebody just occasionally, the institution just decides the rules. There was like a nurse ratchet moment here. So the big point, the big elephant in the room is that Essentially, Pam and Tommy becomes a more serious show in the back half, and it becomes about consent and a woman's right to privacy and personal protection, and obviously this would get greenlit in today's society in the wake of the Me Too movement, and it's framed around that kind of an idea, which is all well and good, except when you consider the fact that the subject of the show, Pamela Anderson, didn't participate in this and didn't really want it to happen. I don't think she fought it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. She seems to try to keep yeah, somewhat probably of a low just... profile about this because she probably doesn't want everyone reminded about it That's all the right. time. It's like if something was buried now going on 30 years ago, you're probably not really in love with the idea of bringing this back to the front of the zeitgeist. Without knowing for sure, I would almost wager that part of her reluctance is just a lot of the craziness in her life at the time, even beyond the tape. I'm sure she doesn't love reliving the miscarriage and all of that stuff. I think that she just had zero intention of ever watching it. She doesn't want to see anything from it, any trailer, any picture, anything. But it is what it is. It's just out there. So... Look, I don't know if she was vehemently against it or going to flip out about it, but it does feel icky when your whole point is about consent and then you don't seemingly have the consent of the subject of the show. It is strange. So whose story exactly are you telling? That's one of my criticisms of it. It kind of feels like they started it not knowing where they were going with it. Well, I think that was intentional. I think they wanted you to hook you in with the salacious thing and they wanted to, to swerve you. Okay. But it's not super effective to do it like that because, I don't know, you've already got the titillation, no pun intended. So, yeah. I, I don't know. It, it, there's not even enough material there for eight episodes. Right, that's really. true, too. So it does start to drag on at a certain point. I feel like the portrayal of the Tommy Lee character is like a roller coaster. Like, he seems like a horrible villain at times, and then he seems like a normal, nice dude. And Yeah, they do sort of make him seem manic depressive or like all over the map yeah which might be true to life i'm not sure and then maybe that's it i think sebastian stan did meet with tommy lee a little bit so his involvement was at least somewhat there but pam's was not and she is essentially the the main character by the end she's she's the one who's going through it because as she points out it's not really the same for tommy as it is for her right he's not going to be treated the same way she is and it is embarrassing going on The Tonight Show and being asked about oh it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, talk about someone who really didn't come off looking good through all this. Jay Leno <laughs> in his writer's room. 
Yeah, I just think that's how it was about stuff like that. I remember how the late night shows would treat Britney Spears during right. a mental breakdown yeah, yeah, or yeah. whoever, and they never really were sympathetic to things like that. And I think women do have it way, way worse. For sure. Men can be the butt of jokes too, obviously Robert Downey Jr. when he was going through it Yikes. or, or yeah. whoever. Or Hugh Grant famously, but Hugh Grant's in a position where he can just show up and laugh it off and then it's over. And no one really even cares that that happened anymore. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, in a way, when this happens to someone like Pamela Anderson, it becomes one of the defining things of who they are in society. But for people who love the 90s, it's a fun time capsule with the music and some of the things going on. And For sure. The references and whatnot. Third Eye Blind appearance definitely is made up. I don't think that that's real at all. That, that they, they were on the same label? Yeah, well, that they were recording in the studio that Molly Crew was usually in, and they had this like run-in. I was reading some of the things that weren't Yeah, real. it seems unlikely that that specific thing happened, but that was probably just supposed to be symbolic of a changing of the guard. Although right. I do remember an MTV Music Awards where they were playing on the pre-show. I think that was pretty real. I will say this. Even though around this time in life when this stuff was happening, I... I came to know who Tommy Lee was. I don't think I know a Motley Crue song. <laughs> I know some. I don't I'm know. I'm not a fan. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just seems crazy to me that they were ever this they whatever. Were a huge band at one point. I, however they used to measure this stuff, triple platinum fucking. Yeah, no, I know, but it's just. And obviously he's like filthy rich in this show. Yeah. And he had a huge penis. Yeah, good for him. So fuck him. Some life. <laughs> Yeah, and then the little footnote at the end of the last episode where they talk about him being arrested for domestic violence against Pam at one point yeah. when, when they broke up, and it got messy, and I, it kind of, you remember all that stuff, and it's like, oh, God. I do think Seth Rogen playing that dude is a, a mistake. For what the show ends up being about, that guy should barely be a character. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not about that guy. Well, it's almost like... They don't want to even frame his, the, him as the villain, so then don't put him in it that he's much. He's playing like his normal type of everyman, like well, they have that whole stoner thing character. With Taylor Schilling from Orange is the New Black, yeah. and you're like, what is this? It takes up a lot of screen time, quite frankly. That They were milking it to get it yeah. to be eight episodes. But you don't understand what I'm saying. If he's not yeah. going to be the villain, because you want to make him too sympathetic, and you almost frame it as if he just made a mistake. And they, The way they do it is Tommy is such a dick to him. Yes. That you almost feel like his initial robbery is justified, kind of. Right. Now, what he does with the tape obviously yeah, isn't. That should have been, it, going with how they wanted to present it and not necessarily what happened in real life, it, from there, it should have been like the way that this all ends up coming out is a like misguided, almost accidental thing from this guy's perspective. If you want this guy to be sympathetic. Well, I think they wanted it to be a little factually accurate. Yeah, yeah. I do think that, that that because of the newness of the internet, not that this even makes it okay, because even if you were just handing out the tape to people and forget the internet part of it, it still is completely fucked up, obviously. Uh-huh. But I think it spiraled into something that he didn't realize, and obviously he didn't understand the ramification of, of what he was doing to Pamela. Sure. But... Not that that's any excuse, but I that's the way they present it in the show, which is just, this thing just grew and grew and grew, and he it got out of control so quickly, and he didn't realize what was going to happen. But, yeah, since they want to portray the lawyers and oh, yeah. 
Penthouse and society and late night TV and the news as the villains. They should just have the guy who stole the tape be a character that shows up in the first episode. But they wanted to show you how the tape gets distributed. It turns into a whole thing. But they end up making the guy feel too sympathetic. And well, even weird. having him get fucked over by the Nick Offerman character, which I can't even really explain what that guy's life is either. He's just a shady porn producer. And then somehow getting involved in almost doing odd jobs for organized crime by the <laughs> Which end of maybe was true. Yeah. Maybe one of the guys that ended up funding the initial tape manufacturer. I love the concept that like he doesn't understand that people are just going to copy the tape. Right. And that it's stolen property to begin with and it's like you can't like trademark this. Well, there's and- definitely a lot of humor out of like the this guy's an idiot. You know, that's definitely woven in throughout. But all of this, I don't know. It's just not seamlessly strung together. Yeah. So it's a mixed bag. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely sounds like we hate it, although I don't know that I actually felt that way. I didn't have a problem finishing it. It wasn't like, oh my God, this This is unwatchable. I do think that the first three episodes end up being more entertaining, which is what they want you to feel. They want you to be hooked in and then have that gut punch of, like, here's what you should really think about it. But ultimately, uh, I didn't need them to preach to me. I I think I can figure out on my own who's being exploited here. Right, yes. And they they were a little heavy-handed with it sometimes. Sure. For sure, especially in some really embarrassing moments in the finale, which were almost unwatchable. You had to, like, look away. It was like, oh, Yeah, I was finding a little bit of a harder time sticking with it towards the end. Yeah, they were dragging it out, and they got super heavy-handed. Really top-notch performance from Lily James as Pamela Anderson. We didn't even mention her by name. It is a wild thing, though. You're watching someone be nude, but it's all like fake prosthetic. (laughs) It's fake, fake boobs. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then obviously the fake penis that's talking at one point. Right. Yeah, it's a wild production. So check that out yeah, on really. Hulu if you get a chance. Follow us on Twitter at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know if you'd like a sticker. And find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. A little bit of uncertainty with the schedule coming up. I don't know if we're going to be taking a week off next week or something but we'll Matt's traveling out. we're yeah. trying to like figure out we, we have a specific episode we need to do for a listener request which we will be doing so that's definitely happening we may take a week off at some point in may whatever just deal with it i know we're really? taking a lot of time off yeah but it's okay if you only knew yeah yeah what i'm saying before we even hit record zach <laughs> needs a break for his mental health here and there too <laughs> this is straight torture doing this show. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think he's, like, setting me up to give him a pep talk to keep it going, but there's just no pep talk coming. No, I know better that you're not (laughs) going to be able to do that. So we'll see what happens. We might take a week off next week or at some point in May or something. we got to figure it out. But whatever. We'll talk to you when we talk to you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. (laughs) That's my new sign-off. That's good. There's a war inside of me. Do I cause a new heartbreak to rise? A new broken song Do I push it down Or let it run me right into the
Forces of Hulkamania, and I have seen it great strides before. <laughs> Come together at SummerSlam. The tanks that we ride in are made of the armor of Hulkamaniacs and warriors of great strength. After we destroy you with an improper burial, <laughs> what, what you gonna, gonna do when Hulkamania and the Ultimate Warrior ride over here? 